Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, September 12th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here are a few uh, strange but true facts I'd like to share with you this morning, 10 of them to be exact, uh, starting off with uh, dolphins sleep with one eye open. Not two eyes, one eye. They have to be uh, constantly on the lookout for predators, and so these marine mammals have developed a neat trick of maintaining partial consciousness even as a part of their brain sleeps. I'm assuming, Pastor John, you and Cordy, as parents of newborns, you have also mastered this technique, one eye on Julian and the other uh, trying to get a little bit of rest. Uh, did you know that McDonald's drive-thrus, uh, McDonald's invented drive-thrus because of the military? It's true. In 1975, a restaurant in Sierra Vista, Arizona, near Fort Huachuca, uh, wanted to serve military members, but they were not permitted to get out of their cars off base while wearing their uniforms. So McDonald's said, well, let's make this little window. You don't have to get out of your car, and we'll just hand you your food. And now, busy parents everywhere rejoice for drive throughs uh, Squirrels are the cause of most power outages in the United States. It's true. The American Public Power Association tracks such statistics, and they've determined that May to June and October to November are peak times for squirrel attacks on the power lines. I mean, that's just nuts. Uh, did you know, thank you, thank you for those groans, I work for those. Uh, did you know that 25% of all bones in the human body are housed in our feet? It's true. We have 206 total bones in our bodies, 26 of them housed in each foot, 26 plus 26, 52. That's slightly more than 25% of our total bonage, I guess you would say, bone capacity. Uh, sunglasses were invented so that Chinese judges could hide their emotions in court. Who knew, right? In 12th century China, sunglasses were made out of smoky quartz rock, uh, they were fashioned so judges could mask their facial uh, expressions while questioning people in court. And they looked really cool at the beach as well, so there was that. Uh, did you know that a blue whale's veins are so large that theoretically a human being could swim through them? The largest blue whales can be over 100 feet long and weigh over 100 tons. Uh, their hearts alone weigh over 1,300 pounds, more than some small cars. So not surprisingly, their arteries have to be large enough to pump blood through their entire body. And the veins are wide enough for humans, maybe small humans, uh, to swim through it. Though, I must say, please don't try this at home or at SeaWorld. Did you know that cloud can weigh over a million pounds? The USGS, United States Ge Geological Survey, calculates uh, the uh, mass of a cloud by taking the water density and then multiplying it by volume. And so they estimate that a decent-sized cloud could easily weigh over one million pounds. And don't ever say, I'm sweating like a pig, because 
Pigs don't sweat. They don't have sweat glands. It's impossible. They cool off by finding holes uh, and mud to wallow around in. So maybe you could say, I'm so hot, I could roll around in mud or something if you... No, that probably isn't very good either. My number nine strange but few track takes us into space. Astronomer Fred Hoyle calculated that if gravity were no obstacle and we had an unlimited supply of oxygen to breathe and gasoline for our engines, and assuming traction was also not an issue, and probably a bunch of other uh, uh, factors in physics that I'm not even mentioning right now, then if we drove at 60 miles an hour, it would take us one hour to drive into space. That's it, just one hour. And finally, did you know that bubble wrap was originally created as wallpaper? <laughs> yep, according to an article in Forbes magazine, in 1957, engineers Alfred W. Fielding and Mark Chavandes uh, sealed two shower curtains together, and that caused uh, a number of air bubbles in the process. And they said, this would be great wallpaper. Nobody bought it as wallpaper, but three years later, they realized, you know, maybe we should turn this into packaging material, and eventually, bubble wrap was formed. Well, welcome to a brand new, short, three-week sermon series entitled, Wrestling with Doubt. And you may have no problem suspending belief when it comes to issues like the weight of clouds, uh, the sweat or lack thereof of pigs, and bubble wrap wallpaper, but... What about when it comes to issues of faith and Christianity? I mean, isn't doubt supposed to be a bad thing? Like, doesn't it imply a lack of faith? Isn't it just for atheists only? And does faith require us to be certain about everything that we believe? I mean, those are just a few of the questions that we'll be uh, addressing over the next few weeks. Because, let's be honest, I mean, we live in a time and a culture that pretty much doubts everything, right? Just as a matter of principle. P.T. Barnum was often credited as saying, there's a sucker born every minute, right? Nobody wants to be that sucker. Nobody wants to be conned or connived or hustled. So we maintain a certain level of uh, suspicion, skepticism, and disbelief, right? And yet, renowned 17th century French philosopher René Descartes once said, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. So we're going to hold these two in two extremes in tension as we move forward. Now, I've entitled today's message, The ABCs of Doubt, and I want us to start off with the basic question of what role does doubt play when it comes to faith? I mean, in a, in a culture where doubt abounds, why is it that we people of faith often do not voice our doubts out loud? We don't let others know. Uh, Professor Alistair McGrath, I uh, had a chance to study under him for one semester in seminary at Drew Theological School. He was an avowed atheist who converted to Christianity. In his book, Doubting, McGrath notes how, many, how, how that many Christians suppress their doubts. He says this, somehow admitting to doubt seems to amount to insulting God, like calling God's integrity into question on the one hand. You may think that admitting to doubt is a sign of spiritual or intellectual weakness. On the other, you may be reluctant to admit those doubts to your friends in case you upset them, perhaps damaging their own faith. Anyone thought either of these 
uh, two things before. So let's jump right into this, and let's talk about what doubt uh, is not. Well, doubt is not skepticism. Skepticism is uh, the decision to deliberately doubt everything just as a matter of principle. It's also not unbelief, right? Unbelief is an intentional decision not to have faith in God or whatever. Unbelief is an act of will. It's, it's not merely a difficulty in understanding. Now, in the New Testament, there are, um, the concept of doubt is expressed in four different words depending on the situation. There is hesitation uh, to hold back or hesitate. In the Gospel of Matthew, after the resurrection of Jesus, he met his disciples up on a mountaintop, and he's giving them his final instructions, including what we have come to call the Great Commission. And even here, among his most loyal followers, Matthew tells us, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Second, doubt is represented in the New Testament by indecision. And it has this sense of uh, arguing, taking issue, or being at odds with. In a different time in his ministry, Jesus said this to his disciples, Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. Often this is an internal uh, mental debate reflecting indecision and a lack of conviction by a believer. Third, doubters are often described as being double-minded. And so this includes what we just mentioned, uh, indecision and hesitation, but it leads to a resulting lack of progress. The author of James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you heart, your hearts, you double-minded. And finally, the Bible references that doubt is literally a state of mind, that in the scripture reading that we had just heard, when Jesus finally appeared to the disciple Thomas, he said to Thomas, do not doubt, but believe. And we'll talk more about Thomas in just a few moments. But you know, doubt is also a reflection of our human frailty. One of the marks I believe of maturity in a person is coming to realize that so much, there is so much that we do not know in this world, right? One of the hallmarks of United Methodist theology is the ability to allow for uncertainty, to allow individuals the space and opportunity to wrestle with their faith, to ask hard questions, and to be okay with not having immediate answers. I'm always leery of a faith that has an answer for everything. God is much bigger than we think, and uh, it's natural to struggle with issues of doubt and uncertainty at various points in one's faith journey, and for many of us, we've come to embrace that tension, right, that we, we have to be okay with trusting God despite our lack of knowledge. It's said, been said that God reveals, uh, God is revealed to us partially, but accurately and adequately up to the limits of our abilities. I mean, those of you that are teachers, we don't start teaching third graders calculus, right? That, that would be completely frustrating and discouraging. I mean, heck, as a senior in high school, I was frustrated and discouraged by calculus. But when it comes to third graders, we begin with basic math skills. Alistair McGrath puts it this way. Say we want to see the stars. 
or, or, or to catch a glimpse of the Milky Way. Well, we can't just go out in the middle of the day and see the stars. No. Why? We have to wait until it's dark. Now, the stars are still present in the middle of the day. They're still out there in the universe. It's just that we cannot see them. Our eyes aren't discerning enough to pick up light during the day. But when it's night, then our eyes are able to adjust so that we can see the tiny pinpoints of light that are coming from the depths of the universe highlighted against the blackness of night. But, McGrath says, the stars don't need darkness to exist. They're already there. We, however, need darkness if we're going to see them and to convince ourselves that, oh yeah, even during the day, they're still there. So it is with God. Just as our eyes cannot see the stars during the day, our minds can't take in the fullness, the majesty, the awesomeness of God. It's the way we see things rather than the way things actually are, which is the problem. And being human, well, that just places limits on what we can see, know, and understand. So being prepared to accept those limitations, that's an essential part in growing in our faith. McGrath likens, it to, likens doubt to, well, he calls it the growing pains of faith. And I think that's a great analogy, right? That sometimes doubt, like growing pains in life, sometimes they recede into the background and we're not aware of them much. But in other times or seasons of life, they push to the forefront, especially when we're growing. The question is, can we handle a faith that has room for doubt? Now, when it comes to the topic of doubt, uh, no one person is more connected to this concept in the Bible than the disciple uh, of Thomas. In fact, his name has become synonymous with doubt, and it's part of the common uh, lexicon, right? A doubting Thomas is someone who doesn't believe in a particular item or a cause. So I invite you, if you have them with you, uh, to open up your Bibles to John chapter 20, or you can take out your smartphones Take out the Bible, the church app, and uh, scroll down the opening page, and where it says Bible, click on that, and uh, you will be directed to John chapter 20. Now, before we start reading, let me remind you what has taken place uh, at this point in the gospel. So chapter 20 of John begins on the first Easter Sunday. Mary Magdalene and a couple of disciples are going to Jesus' tomb. They, they find the stone rolled away, which is shocking to them. The tomb is empty. Uh, the two disciples run back, uh, not really sure what to believe. But Mary stays around the tomb, and she comes face to face with Jesus. She thinks he's a gardener at first, but then he, by calling her name, she recognizes him. So we're in the same chapter, we're picking up at verse 19 of John chapter 20. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So here are our illustrious disciples, right? Those who had followed Jesus closely during his three years of adult ministry. And yet when they needed him most, they all, except for John, abandoned him. They all fled and left. And it really was only John and Mary uh, and a few others, the, uh, women that stayed at the crucifixion with him. And now the disciples are locked up tight in some undisclosed 
place, location in Jerusalem. Why? Because they're terrified. They're afraid that, that what happened to Jesus, that the authorities arrested him and killed him, that that would happen to them also being his followers. So Jesus comes to them in the midst of their fears and uncertainties, in the midst of their locked room, and he shows them proof that it's really him, that he has risen. And what was the proof that he showed them? John tells us after this, he showed them his hands and his side. Of course, because the nails that went through his hands and the spear that went through his side. Now remember this because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. Verses 24 and 25. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, three things stand out to me as I read through this. First, um, what were the disciples doing when Jesus came to meet them? They're just huddling, right, in a room, locked up because they were afraid. And all the disciples were there except who? Thomas. What was he doing? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say what he was doing. We just know that he wasn't there uh, locked in the room in fear along with the other disciples. So he must have had the courage to venture outside of the locked room for whatever reason. And I I have to think that's a somewhat important insight into his character. Next, what was it the proof that Thomas asked for? Right? He said, I want to see uh, the nail marks in his hands, and I'm going to put my uh, fingers in, uh, the hand, in the holes in his hands and in his side. Okay, so um, quick poll, whether you're watching online or here in person this morning, uh, how many of you are right up there with Thomas and be like, ooh, let me stick my fingers inside the hole marks in your body. I mean, like this famous painting by Cavaggio. I mean, really get up in there with your finger like Thomas. I would not be there with Thomas. But Thomas becomes the scapegoat, right, simply because he wanted proof of Jesus' resurrection. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Isn't that exactly what Jesus showed the other disciples the first time he came, right? He, John tells us that he showed them his hands and his side. So if you want to reframe the incident, Thomas is simply requesting the privilege of seeing what his fearful brothers have already seen from Jesus. And third, since uh, he's the one with doubting in front of his name, you have to admit, Thomas wasn't exactly the first disciple of Jesus's to doubt in the resurrection. I mean, remember, we covered that verse from the last chapter of Matthew's gospel, 28, 17. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. We could also look at another gospel, uh, Luke chapter 24, verses, verse 11. The women get back from the tomb on Easter morning. They tell the disciples that he is alive, that the tomb was empty. And Luke tells us, but these words seem to them an idle tale. And the disciples did not believe the women. Since we're playing the doubting game and we've looked at uh, Matthew and Luke's gospel, let's jump on over to the gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 14. 
Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were sitting at the table, and he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So, pardon my insistence on asking this question again, but why is it that Thomas is the one that gets credited for being the lone doubter amongst all of the disciples? I mean, honestly, it seems like all of them, or or at least many of them, had some level of doubt at one time or another, doesn't it? But that's not the end of the story. A week later, Jesus gives Thomas exactly what he asked for. He appears to disciples again, and Thomas is present. John 20, verse 27. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Now, in John's gospel, notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, Thomas, Thomas. I mean, I thought we had something. How could you possibly do this? How how could you not believe that I had risen? I am so, the, the parental phrase, right? I am so disappointed in you. No, Jesus doesn't say that at all. He comes to Thomas in the midst of his doubts. Let me say that again. In the midst of his doubts, and he offers himself to Thomas just like he has already offered himself to the other disciples. And out of that encounter, instead of scolding, condemnation, or punishment, we get something quite amazing, verses 28 and 29. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Biblical scholar Gail R. O'Day calls this the most powerful and complete confession of Jesus in the entire book of John. My Lord and my God. Thomas says something in John's gospel that no one else says about Jesus. Thomas calls him his Lord and his God. So do you recognize the gravity of what has just taken place? It was out of the doubts of Thomas, actually the doubts that all the disciples had had at one moment or another, that Thomas was then able to move into a statement of deep and abiding faith. And it makes me wonder, what if Thomas had been there that first night that Jesus appeared to the disciples? Would he still have come to the same Uh, revelation, or maybe because he had that week or so to wrestle with his doubts, that he was then able to ground himself in a deeper sense of confession of who Jesus truly was. My friends, as we journey together over the next three weeks, may God come to meet each of us in our own doubts, no matter uh, how small or large those doubts may be. May may we allow ourselves permission to doubt and question, not because we have little faith, but precisely because we want to have an enormous faith. We want to bring our entire body and soul and spirit into the full commitment of faith, which often comes after we journey through those wilderness moments of doubt. So may we, like Thomas, come to understand just how wonderful our God truly is. God is big enough to handle our doubts, our fears, our questions, our apprehensions. God is loving enough to walk with us through those as well and to lead us into a deeper and more fulfilling relationship with him. 
Thanks be to God. Amen.